Welcome to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendricks Past, featuring familiar voices sharing memories from their time at Hendricks College, big and small pieces of life that help make Hendricks Hendricks. Season three features retired faculty paired with alumni interviewers. For this episode, we welcome Dr. Karen Griebling, who served as a faculty member in the music department at Hendricks from 1987 to 2018. A composer, conductor, and violist, Karen taught music theory, composition, counterpoint, orchestration, and viola, developed and taught the first world music course offering at Hendrix, and founded and conducted the Hendrix Chamber Orchestra. Karen is joined today by her friend and former student, Stephanie Smittle, Hendrix class of 2003, who is the entertainment editor for the Arkansas Times and a versatile mezzo-soprano soloist. Karen, Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it is just my pleasure to talk with you, Dr. Griebling, Karen. It's very hard to <laughs> call your former professors by their first names. Um, I know that you came to Hendricks in the fall of 1987. What brought you to Arkansas? And do you have any early memories or first impressions about the school and the campus? Um, of course, yes. Uh, at the time I was living in Vermont, I had been one year out of my doctorate at University of Texas and was uh, basically freelancing up in New England, uh, playing uh, with the Albany Symphony in Albany, New York, um, doing some work with uh, Dartmouth College and so forth on the side. And I saw the job uh, opening uh, advertised in the College Music Society. And I thought, boy, that sounds like me. And I want to get out of this cold climate. Um, I came down for the interview. I think it was probably the beginning of March and there were flowers blooming and the sun was shining. And I thought, and I had left in a blizzard. And I thought, I want this job. So so that was my first impression. And that was how I arrived. I hope that the climate was not only warmer, but that someone warned you about how uh, fickle it would be and ever-changing. Well, I, obviously, I'd lived in Texas before, which a little further south, but I was aware of certainly the, the uh, tornado alley aspect of things from living in Austin and Houston. You kind of, kind of know things like that happen. The other thing that I really remember was just the generosity of my new colleagues when we showed up at the apartment. Uh, it was Village Apartments, which back, back then the Walmart hadn't been built yet. And so it was this just big open field in these brand new apartments. And we had a piano and a second story and everybody chipped in and helped us move that piano up to the second story. Wow. I thought for good, you know, I was terrified actually because, you know, here was Dr. Bohm underneath of a piano pushing it up these stairs. And I thought, what if this falls on, on him? What a horrible thing, you know? So that was, but the, you know, it was that sort of warmth and camaraderie that really, um, really impressed me. And Dr. Fleming was the one that sort of organized the welcome wagon and the, the um, moving crew and everything. And people had us in to eat. I don't think I ate at home for about two weeks because everybody was saying, oh, come over and have dinner with us or come have lunch. And, and so that warm Southern hospitality after being up in Vermont was very, very welcome change indeed. Wow. And the image of Dr. Bohm underneath that piano trying to move it is great. <laughs> 
Um, well, as is the case, I expect for many professors, you led a scholarly life outside of your role in the classroom, not only as a composer of note, but also as a musician yourself, a professional viola player, and maybe other roles I'm not even thinking of. How I'm wondering how you kept all of these career threads kind of in balance at, across your time at Hendrix. Well, you know, I don't know. It was just part of my life all, all along was, you know, being in class as a student and freelancing to support myself and um, writing music because my degree was in composition and theory. Um, it just, it was just a continuation more of the same as far as I was concerned. Um, uh, I always used to joke that playing the viola supported my composition habit. And, um, you know, so it, it, I should say that I started composing when I was four. Uh, my parents were both musicians and my mother was my first teacher. And so I just never knew a time in my life when I wasn't doing all of those things. And so just continuing to do them was just part and parcel of who I was, I think, who I am, because I'm still doing them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I also felt as though my connection to the broader musical community as a member of the Arkansas Symphony, for example, uh, really gave uh, my students lots of opportunities uh, in the profession that they might not have had if they had just been in the classroom. For example, when we developed a music business program, uh, I coordinated with the Arkansas Symphony to uh, allow students to intern with them in the office as part of arts management experiences. And Barbara Burroughs, who uh, was my contact and liaison for that program, got to the point where she was starting to call me every semester and say, who do you have you can send down here? Your, the Hendrix students are great. We'd like some more of them, please. Um, and it really became, I think one of the, the really fun times was when Dana Falconbury was doing that program. And um, she got up in front of the orchestra and the chorus. I think we were doing Beethoven nine and started doing the sorts of things that most of the people in the office, you know, the adult professionals would have been doing. She was up there with her clipboard and her microphone telling people what to do and where to go. And, and the students who were in the choir from the Hendricks college choir were, I think they were just, you know, what is she doing there? Mm -hmm. you know? She the boss, <laughs> and it was it was really cool uh, to see that. So I felt I felt like some of those things actually had some really good ramifications for the students. Um, a lot of the students that came through the string program ended up playing in the orchestra. Um, Kim Lovelace, who was a violin student at Hendrix, and then switched to viola, and won an Arkansas Symphony audition a semester after she made that switch and ended up being my stand partner for about 25 years. Wow. That's and, so great. You know, we, you know, we were, I was so proud, you know, and, and she was the first of many. We had students in the violin section, the viola section, cello, bass, the whole shebang. And um, again, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity. Some of them took the job as kind of interns where they would just play you know, a partial season. Uh, some of them jumped in, you know, with both feet got, and just did the whole thing. And um, how they juggled that with a demanding college, you know, course load and so forth, especially those that were doing double majors, I have no idea. 
I mean, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine doing cell biology and playing first violin in the in Arkansas Symphony at the same time, for example, because the symphony does about a hundred services a year. Right. So, and I'm wondering because so you mentioned you know the very early age that you came to composing. Um, I know that you come from a, a musical family. And Hendrix is a place where students um, in your classes may or may not have been totally music driven, right? That may or may not have been their degree, as opposed to like if you were teaching at a conservatory or a performing arts school. I wonder how you approached that um, sort of that that idea of, of creating well-rounded graduates and if there are any benefits in your mind of having an education where the curriculum requires that you encounter more than one discipline. Oh, yeah. Um, it's so funny you asked that. I was kind of giggling because um, that was one of the first questions I was asked when I was being interviewed on the search committee, right? Ah. It, you know, I have this conservatory background. How in the world am I going to make that switch over to a liberal arts program? And the truth of the matter was, is that when I was finishing up in high school, I did what I always do, not not necessarily take the obvious choice first. Sometimes that cost me on standardized tests. It's, um, I found myself thinking, okay, music's been a big part of my life, all my life, my family's all music. Is this really the best choice? Should I really be doing this or should I be doing something else? And I'm telling you, my poor parents were up until three o'clock in the morning, night after night with me agonizing about whether I should go to Yale or do something other than the obvious thing. And then basically the scholarship sort of opportunities sort of continued to push me towards music de uh, degree. So I have no regrets, but Hendrix was the path not taken for me. You know, I, I had a rich life beyond music um, that was informed by the things that I wanted to read about and learn about history, um, you know, theater, so forth. I, you know, if I hadn't decided to do the conservatory route, liberal arts probably would have been. And those are so, so polar opposites, really. I mean, you know, you're either all in with the music and spend, you know, 26 hours a day with it. Um, or you go off and you try to broaden your horizons. And I was doing all that on my, on my own time. Right, right. Well, and I think it speaks to that you are able to see the technical side of music and the mathematical side, but also you have an understanding of the artistic and the emotional side of, of composing and expression. Well, and, you know, getting back to the student uh, angle of that, knowing that my students were going off to pursue very different careers than I had in mind, what I really wanted for, for myself, um, what I really wanted to see was that they would be enriched by music and be passionate and find something to love in it. Because it's one thing to work all day. Um, but if you if you don't have anything to come back to to make all that work worthwhile, what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a famous Winston Churchill quote about, you know, what are we doing it for if not for for art, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's a huge part of it. Really, it's just what do you do when you're when you're done, you know, putting out widgets for the day. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I, I hope it's more than putting out widgets, but if that's what you're doing for the day, let's find some something to be joyful about to make having punched the clock, you know, worthwhile. Sure. Right. Um, and I used to love sitting, you know, going to a concert, didn't matter whether it was ASO or something else, and I'd go out there and I'd see students sitting in the audience, you know, or at a theater production or something, and I'd think, that person's going pre-med. This one over here is doing, you know, education or whatever it is. And that person was in the in in the audience. It just wouldn't miss a concert. Right. And I thought, okay, that's that's what we're doing this for. One course in particular uh, mentioned in the introduction to this podcast, actually, uh, one of my all-time favorite courses, not only that I took with you, but at Hendrix, hands down. At the time, it was called World Music. Um, Maybe it would be called something different now. I don't know. We covered everything from Indian Raga to the blues of the American Delta. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your passion for music outside the classical European paradigm and why it was important for you to bring that into the classroom. Yeah, that that was one of the most challenging courses I taught while I was at Hendrix. And the reason for that was that world music wasn't a part of my own curriculum as a student. I didn't have any background in it. Um, mm-hmm. When National Association of Schools of Music came through for one of their every 10-year accreditation visits, um, they were sort of peering over their their pince-nez at us and said, well, you need a non-Western component in your curriculum. And I thought, oh, dear. And we were all sort of shuffling and avoiding eye contact with this person trying to figure out, okay, who's, who's going who's gonna to take one for the team? And I started thinking many of my favorite composers in the Western classical tradition were composers that worked from folk music and, and enlivened their, their own uh, musical styles uh, with folk music, Bartok, Kodai, Vaughn Williams, Gustav Holst, people of that sort, Aaron Copeland. Um, and I thought, 
even Dvorak. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm a composer. I love the music by these composers. I think I, I will be the one to do this because I will learn so much and it will probably, I mean, this is very self-serving. It'll probably enrich my compositional language too and give me some, get me thinking outside the box a little bit. Um, so in 2000, um, I was very fortunate. An old friend of mine was living in Singapore and he invited me to come over to premiere a piece of his in Singapore, all expenses paid, and to stay an extra week to go to a world music festival that was being held on the island of Borneo. Headhunters, right? Oh, okay. okay. And yeah. so I went to this and this was actually, as it happened, it was right on the heels of this NASM visit. And I thought, okay, this is going to be really interesting. And boy, did it open my mind and my ears. And I was really excited about it. But that first year of teaching that course, I think I spent easily eight hours of prep for every hour in class because this was a completely new discipline to me. There was no, new, as you know, there's new jargon for every country, for every genre of music and for every instrument. And you have to immerse yourself in the geography and the culture and the religions that are practiced and so forth, because it's all tied together. And I felt like I really didn't want to walk in there reading from the textbook. I wanted to be able to have a proper discussion and field questions. And see. so it was it was a huge learning curve for me, but I loved it. And it really at first it was just, you know, coming to grips with the discipline itself. But very shortly thereafter, I made some friends who were uh expert ethnomusicologists, especially in Asian music, East Asian music and South Asian music, and found that it did actually start to inform my composing. I'd been real inspired by my travels to the Southwestern United States for about a decade in the 90s.
And then all of a sudden it, it kind of went off in a different direction. And I started thinking about the music of East Asia, uh, thinking about um, Indian raga and tala. And in fact, one of my recent pieces actually was written for a Cleveland jazz orchestra, um, actually asks them to ex uh, improvise on raga and tala cycles. Mm -hmm. Using a very specific Araga and Tala cycle. And they were, they said, well, gosh, we've never done this before. I said, you know, it's the same thing as you already do. You're improvising on a tune and a rhythm. Just go for it. It's just, we call these Raga and Tala. You know, I'm still doing things like that. It was really fun for me. But I also felt as though so many of the textbooks really sort of skimmed over the material that was at hand. I wanted the students to have a hands-on field experience. And Arkansas is home to two very important uh, musical traditions, the mountain tradition, okay, which came across from the British Isles to Appalachia to the Ozarks, and then the Delta tradition that, uh, where the blues grew up. That those two things, the Delta Cultural Center and the um, uh, Ozark Folk Center, uh, became really fabulous resources for that class. Um, and I tried to encourage students to explore one or the other of those traditions and to, to have an opportunity to do some hands-on field research instead of just read about it and watch videos. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I, I think some people really got excited by it. I remember you did, and I remember Absolutely. you were interested in yodeling too, as I recall. That's right. <laughs> I think I did. I think I did a paper on maybe uh, Granny Almeida Riddle in that class. Yes, yes. Who is in a, was a national treasure, uh, and and um, honored as such. In fact, so yeah, yeah. That's very in keeping with my memory. I I. I feel exactly what you're talking about, about the sort of textbook version where you might have a paragraph on South Indian music, but that's not what happened in your class, right? We went into like the mechanics, the politics, and then also I remember there was a sense of going into the diversity of musics within a genre, right? It was never presented as, oh, you know, Delta Blues is this homogenous thing or mountain music is this homogenous thing that there was a range within that had to do with geography and culture. Very exciting. Um, I, I cherish it. Did you have a favorite course when you were at Hendrix? Oh, golly. Um, well, the things that were, that challenged me the most often became my favorites because I had to put so much into it. Um, the world music was certainly one of them. Uh, when we, did the art of subversion class, which was way after your time. It was um, um, one of those classes for, that was designed for entering first year students to take in their first semester uh, that was paired up with a professor from a different discipline. Um, in my case, it was Matt Windsor from the library. Um, and we decided to have a look at music and philosophy and music as a t uh, type of rhetoric um, through history and how it had been used politically, both in support of regimes and sometimes to uh, revolt against them. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a really challenging teach, uh, class to teach. First of all, there was no textbook. So I was, you know, putting something together with Matt. Um, 
And second of all, the students obviously who came in and took the class, some of them, you know, this wasn't meant to be a music appreciation course. This was going to look at music in a very different way. Many of them, I think, didn't realize it was going to be a music class until they were about halfway through the course. Uh. Uh, but looking back on it, it actually became one of my favorite courses, um, partly because I put so much into it and agonized about it, partly because there were a couple, I think, two or three students in that group of 31 that really uh, connected with it in a big way. It was life changing. In fact, the last day of class, I remember one of one of them, we we. I don't remember exactly the details of this, but we did something that was a bit subversive on the last day of classes just to kind of drive a point home. And she just started crying and she said, I saw what you did, I understand now. And I thought, oh, great, okay. Hearing you speak about that, it occurs to me that you have sort of managed to, even though you have this wealth of, of knowledge and, and you know, your bona fides, right? Like you have kept this student mentality and kept learning like is it maybe because um are are the courses that you that you look back on and loved the ones that challenged you maybe because you are just a lifelong learner at heart I've never really thought about it but I suppose you're right uh I I find as a composer obviously being stimulated by new things is really important to the creative creative process you can't create something new without having something new to stimulate that creative process. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it really boils down to. And I like the fact that I get excited about new stuff, learning new things. Um, I hope that comes across to my students and becomes um, a, a source of inspiration for them. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but sometimes I think it, it, it does connect you know, you have to, as you said, you have to have the context first. Um, so sometimes you have to build on on some things that maybe aren't so much fun, right? You know, sure. beginning music theory sometimes seems pretty pretty dull to a lot of students. It's like, oh, if, am I, this doesn't seem like it has anything to do with music. It's just lots of numbers and letters and things. And it seems more like it's arithmetic or math or algebra or something. And then you get to the point when you get towards the end of that whole thing and you realize, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is something. This is something really special.
and it's like reading Harry Potter the first time. You just you just enjoy the story, but if you go back and you reread it, you start realizing how much more there is to it when you understand about symbolism and you understand about other traditions. Darmstrong comes from Sturm und Drang, you know, and things like that. And you start you start realizing, oh wow, this is this is a great piece of work of art. This isn't just a children's story. This sure. has got so much going on in it that I can read and read and reread those stories and get more on every pass. Just like I can listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony 200 billion times and, you know, be inspired in different ways by it. Um, so that's that's part of it, I think. You mentioned art. You mentioned yoga. Um, what what things did you do at Hendrix beyond the classroom that brought you joy? Well, I guess it depends on how you define classroom. Um, obviously, Hendrix College Chamber Orchestra was another big stretch for me. I had never conducted before. And I realized shortly after I took the position that we needed our own orchestra, not just a community orchestra for students to participate in, so that we could really uh, have a full experience with that. And... The first few years were very difficult because I had to kind of learn the technique of conducting. Again, that was one of my favorite things to be doing, um, but it was one that I had to learn a lot in order to, to do, learn on the job. Uh, we started with six string students and we called it an orchestra. And by the time I left, we had nearly 30 that were playing Elgar symphonies and Mahler symphonies and, you know, had done a CD recording project and had commissioned works from famous composers and made a, you know, worked with the dance program and so on and so forth. And I think probably one of my favorite things was Waltz Night. And that came by uh, uh, about really by quite an accident. A couple of years after the orchestra began, I had invited one of my former teachers to come and do the first ever composer residency, as far as I know, at Hendrix, Dr. Sam Adler. And because we were still on the trimester program at that time, it and his schedule was such that we had to do that his residency fairly early in the winter term. Um, we had to, I had to, th you know, I was trying to design a program where we'd have one concert per semester, and it kind of threw a, a kink into the programming schedule for that that particular year. And I thought, well, why don't we go over to the cafeteria uh, at the, the ballroom in Hewland and just do something fun, you know, so get, do something that isn't a, a formal concert, and we'll just play some Strauss waltzes. So, you know, we, the, the students and I put together a program of maybe half a dozen or so Strauss waltzes just for fun and invited the audience to dance. And I kept hearing about this on campus for months afterwards. People were like, do it again? Are you going to do it? I think you should do it every year and, and so forth. And so eventually it became a real focal point for us. Um, I don't, I wish I had started counting the number of times we've done it. I think we must've done it for 20 years, roughly at least. Um, and it became a fundraiser to support a community program. Um, we've, it got it grew from being maybe about a half an hour of music to being two hours of music with no intermission 
uh, I would invite special groups to come in and, you know, spell off my musicians and play a set by themselves sometimes. Um, and we did a lot more than waltzes and polkas. We did tangos, we did salsa, we did all sorts of things. And it was a way to combine with Bridget Rogers' dance program because they choreographed the Blue Danube for our big finale uh, and did it in costume and it looked elegant. It was designed to, to sort of mimic what is done with the Vienna New Year's Day program uh, that we see on PBS. Um, I, would, I invited students from the ballroom dance class to come over and show the audience how to actually do the steps. And we had all sorts, we had people in full tuxedo and ball gown out on the floor and people in shorts and flip flops out on the floor and couples of all sorts and people, you know, trying to learn how to dance and people who were obviously expert dancers. It was great fun. I mean, it was a huge amount of work every year um, from, you know, setting up the room and dragging in the refreshments and doing the decorations and running a dress rehearsal and doing the sound check and getting everything wired and lit and so forth, doing the program and then tearing it all down afterwards. That was a full day work for me. And I used to go to a massage therapist the day afterward just to, you know, get all the kinks out and worked out. I remember Debbie said, saying to me, did you have waltz night last night? You're a mess. <laughs> because I would be so sore. I could hardly move after that. But it was so fun. It was so much fun. Um, and I think one of my most treasured possessions is a photograph that was taken by one of the students from within the orchestra. I think it, I think it was a percussion student, given the angle of it, of the shot. Um, well, I'm conducting something and that everybody signed and gave to me when I retired. And that has pride of place. It says the little orchestra that did because uh -huh. we call ourselves the little orchestra that can. And I just, for me, that was. <sighs> I that love that because so much of what we do as musicians is so ephemeral, right? Like you created a moment, mm -hmm. but it was just a moment. <laughs> and, and And you have a record of it, you know. Uh, imprinted on your subconscious, or maybe you have this photograph, or maybe in your case, you have, you know, studio recordings of, of your mm -hmm. compositions. But for the most part, what we do passes through us and passes through the audience and um, in ways that are like, maybe not as measurable. Well, to me, that was that that was always the big 
the big show. I mean, every show is a big show in some way or another, but that one was the big one. You know, it was kind of the orchestra's version of Candlelight. It was community building. Do you, um, it, it, I'm listening to you talk about, you know, the bringing like orchestra students in. It occurs to me too that through that process, you learn things like this is how you share a stand with somebody. This is how you, um, this is how early you should show up, um, mm-hmm. that you should warm up before you show up. Um, all of the sort of like logistic and etiquette things that you learn in performance that you might not get in the classroom. I wonder what kind of feedback you've gotten from students over the years, or if you have an example of a student you taught who um, you're proud of the path that they took and proud to be part of it. Your your question, question going back to showing up early and being prepared and that sort of thing, that just goes down to basic professionalism. But a lot of people don't really have the opportunity 
to experience that um, while they're students, unless they're a part of, for example, an athletic team or a musical ensemble or a theater group or something where you, you know, you have to Mm -hmm. be there on time and and know your, know your part, you know, know your lines and don't fall into the furniture kind of thing. Um, And you can't just show up and wing it. I mean, you can try, but you'll get caught out pretty fast. And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing in the fall every year um, was teaching students in the orchestra how to prepare their parts. We would read through, and it might sound like a total mess of first reading through, especially if it was something very challenging. And then I say, okay, everybody, put your instruments down, take out your pencil, put a little X in the margin for anything that you stumbled over. Those are your naughty bits. And we're going to work on the naughty bits until we got we have them up to tempo, and then we'll insert them back into the fabric of the music and go forward and backward a measure on either side so that we're prepared mentally for those naughty bits when we get them and, and then can recover from them and continue. You have to do that in real life all the time. It's like driving rush hour traffic at 90 miles an hour to be a musician you know things are coming at you all over the place and you've just got to stay right on there and if you you know run over a pothole in the road you got to keep going right and that and that it's not just about the grade but that it's about the relationships right it's Mm -hmm. about your relationship to the ensemble it's about your relationship to the audience I, i just don't know that you get that sitting in a classroom and i i bet i'm i'm betting those students are are grateful they they receive that i hope so but i'm really grateful for them actually that's you know i i miss my hendrix students people would i, I i'm going to share a little personal aside here i lived in um, a community that was fairly close to hendrix um as you probably are aware and uh basically i lived in that house for 22 years on my own and there at one point my neighbors it was a, a, a neighborhood where there were a lot of retirees, what we call starter homes, where, where you know have a young family with one or two small children that were going to probably buy a larger house in a year or two. Um, and at one point, they were very concerned about something that was being proposed to, to develop in the next across the street, on, uh, and went down to city hall to complain about it and protest and say, say you know, this isn't appropriate for this neighborhood and. I agreed with them and I showed up and here were all these people with their baby strollers and, you know, whatever. And here, here was I, and they said, what are you doing here? You don't have kids. And I said, yeah, I do. I've got 1200 of them just a quarter of a mile down the street. Mm-hmm. And they looked confused. And uh, I said, I teach at Hendrix. Those are my kids.
Uh, flipping it a little bit, is there a colleague who influenced you during your time here or that you have uh, <laughs> memories of uh, that you'd like to share? Oh, golly. In 30 years, lots of colleagues, right. <laughs> lots of memories. Um, uh, I guess early on, I felt as though Don Marr, the art professor, was a great mentor to me. Obviously, we worked in the same building. Um, and I participated in some of his masterworks pro uh, programming, uh, where he did had several professors. Um, I think it was supported by Murphy. Um, uh, that would get together and present something, uh, a masterwork that was not necessarily tied to their own discipline. So it, sometimes, you know, for example, I um, had an opportunity to, to present the work of Federica Garcia Lorca, Giorgio O'Keefe's painting, and so on and so forth. Um, but because I was involved in that, I got to know him a lot better because he was the person who coordinated that whole program. Um, that I might have if we just saw each other passing in the hallway and so forth. And as a young faculty member trying to adapt to all of the various things that one has to adapt to as a young faculty member, I felt as though he took me under his wing quite, quite a bit and sort of helped be a confidant and somebody that I could say, gosh, I'm really stressed about this. What should I do? And, and that sort of thing. And I really, really am grateful. I loved his artwork. Um, he's a really, really fine painter. Um, and I was astonished when I had the opportunity to uh, purchase one of his paintings that I had loved in, in a, a show. And unfortunately, when I moved to England, I had to give it up along with a lot of other prized possessions. Um, and that was one of the ones I regretted most having to give up. Mm. Um, but it hung in my office, and he was very surprised when I told him I was going to hang it. He said, well, why aren't you going to take it home? I said, because I'm never home. Mm -hmm. Everybody, there are so many people that go through my office all the all day long. This way, lots of people will get to enjoy it. And in those stressful moments when I need to just woo-saw, I can turn my chair around and stare at that and feel like I'm, you know, in that landscape. Yeah. And feel the moss between my toes and the cool breeze and, you know, all of that just by all of a sudden it just takes me into that space. Um, so, yeah, art very important. But more importantly, having a friend, a mentor, a colleague. Um, that was I, Don Mar was very special. Mm -hmm. That's that's terrific. I love the image of you turning around and looking at that. At that you, at that piece of work, do you remember the one I'm talking about? The great big long green painting with the crow up in the I tree. I think I do. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, I wonder, you know, I won't ask. Has Hendrix impacted you over time? Because with your time there, it was. <laughs> um, I, I'm guessing the answer is yes. But how has in, uh, Hendrix impacted you over time? Um. How long have you got? Right. <laughs> How long is this podcast? <laughs> um, well, okay. So going back to that arrival that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, um, I think theoretically in my head, I knew what a liberal arts college was and I embraced the notion wholeheartedly. 
as I said, it was the path not taken, but I didn't know what that path would feel like until I actually got on it. You know, I had all sorts of high in the sky, I suppose, notions about what it would be like to be teaching a physics class in a music theory class, right? Mm -hmm. Or a physics student music theory class, or have a math major in my viola section in the orchestra, or whatever happened, happened to be. Um, it caused me to have to reach into myself and get way beyond just the material, just the content. The content is still terribly important. Um, you can't do anything without content. But trying to figure out how to reach people that whose experience of, of life was so different than mine, um, whether it was students or staff member or faculty colleague, um, really brought the creativity out of me in, in different ways. I mean, I used to being creative on paper when I'm writing a piece of music, but having to reach in and try to describe to somebody what they should be doing with their bow arm, you know, in a viola lesson, um, when their only point of reference was something very alien to me, for example. I'm not an athlete at all, so trying to talk about playing tennis or baseball or something like that to describe how to use your bow arm was like, hmm, uh, I, I really, really got to think about this. And I got all sorts of crazy toys to play with, you know, throw balls across the room in the in lesson and so forth. Mm -hmm. to lose the, and I, they were just, um, one, one had to be really, um, you know, growing, in a, growing up in a family with two parents that were composers, theorists, performers, and so forth, and having to, try to express that to somebody that no, doesn't have that background was was a, a challenge, but it was also creative uh, opportunity, learning to interact with colleagues in different departments and also to try. I remember shortly after I arrived, Dr. Baum and I going to the curriculum committee and saying that we'd like to add music composition to the curriculum. and people looking really uncomfortable about this and saying, gosh, isn't that awfully advanced? It's not hard. Kids are creative when they're born, you know? They want to sing songs and dabble with finger paints and, you know, build sandcastles and whatever. I mean, that's, that's part of human nature, but we lose track of that so often and trying to figure out how to reconnect to our childlike selves and find that creativity again is, is sometimes takes a pretty big push. Mm -hmm. I think one experience I had was when I was first trying to encourage women students to compose. I mean, boys will throw themselves into it. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I there are boys in the rock bands. There's, you know, boy composers. There are boy conductors. They're all about this. There, there's no inhibition there. But the first couple of times I had female students signing up for compositions and that, uh, to composition class and then being really frustrated because they didn't know if they were doing it right. Mm -hmm. um, or times when I would ask a question on a test that wasn't really supposed to have a quote-unquote right or wrong answer, but an opportunity to 
think through a problem. I, I remember having a parade of young ladies come to my office in tears going, I don't know how to study for your tests. And we're so used to having a grade slapped on something. And believe me, I do a lot of grading, but I do an awful lot of marking of comments too. Um, those were big challenges for me. And I think having to do that for 30 years really changed me. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering too, if, if, you know, there was a, a point where you have to explain to somebody that, so if you're a woman who's composing and asking, I don't know if I'm doing it right. Well, your, your idea of what's right has been largely listening to white male composers, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. like, well, let's like break down the whole word to begin with. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, I don't expect you to sound like Bach or Mozart or, you know, Chopin. I expect you to sound like you. And mm -hmm. you've got to figure out who that you is. Now, Stephanie, I know you you figured that out. Uh, you have, it's hard to study for. <laughs> you know, how do you study for that? Frankly, how, you know, how, how do we know if it's right or not? Well, does it work? Sure, sure. Um, so what are you doing now? How are you spending your post-Hendrix uh, life? Well, I'd hardly call it retired. Right. Uh, so I probably need to preface this a little bit by what, what happened to get me to this point. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing research on the Richard III uh, libretto, um, which was the opera that you so kindly sang that big role in and did so beautifully. a delight yeah we're in england um and i met a guy over there uh and fell in love and in 2018 
decided to take early retirement so that I could get married to him and move over to the UK, which we did in 2018. And then about a year later, we became aware that my parents were very, very ill. And my dad in particular was physically ill. My mother had dementia. And Rob, my husband, having been through this a few times before, unfortunately, recognized the signs. And he said, you need to get back over there. Now, I'll follow when I can, you know, get affairs, you know, lined up over here. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit. Dad passed away on March 20th of 2020. And I had arrived uh, on the 10th of October of 2019. So I was glad to have six months with him, almost to a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then COVID hit. So Rob and I were apart for a year. And basically, I was helping mom with dementia. And she's now in memory care. Um, and we're renting the house. Rob and I are renting the house from the estate. And I'm continuing to teach. I do some part-time teaching at several liberal arts colleges here as an adjunct. Um, I've taught at uh, Bowling Green State University Firelands. I've been teaching at Ohio Wesleyan. I've done some teaching at Malone University. All of this requires a lot of driving. It's not like being a half a mile away like I used to be at Hendricks, where I could just mm-hmm. roll up bed and be there in five minutes. Uh, so it's, I'm putting lots and lots of miles on the car. And I'm also playing with the Akron Symphony, um, which is a professional orchestra very similar to the Arkansas Symphony. So I feel kind of like I'm doing some of those same things again, uh, juggling uh, a lot of that. And um, one of the things that I did outside of the classroom at Hendrix uh, in Conway, I should say, was to found the Conway Composers Guild, which you very kindly performed some of my music on a couple of times. Um, And there's a Cleveland Composers Guild here, um, which is actually the oldest Composers Guild of its kind in the United States. And so I've been very active with them. I've been, uh, in fact, one of the projects that uh, is coming up very soon, I'll be having a rehearsal on it later this afternoon, is their creativity project, which is uh, pairing up guild member composers with high school and younger students and their teachers to compose a piece for this young person to premiere. And it's all funded by various community organizations. So everybody gets a little stipend for doing this. Um, so I've done this for the last two years. The first, uh, project I did was, uh, for a young lady who played the piano and was an equestrian. That's another of my hobbies. I like doing dressage. And so I I decided to write her up. She, she apparently was not comfortable playing in keys that had lots of sharps and flats and they're on the piano. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Told me so decided to write, I was really mean. I wrote wrote a piece that was an F sharp major, which is six sharps (laughs) Uh, venting on a black horse where the black of course where the black black horse okay and she did a phenomenal job on that piece we 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 really had fun putting that together and and um i asked her if she would um for the we since this was during covid we had to do virtual performances on zoom and so I and and do little interviews and so forth. And so I said, well, for your interview, I think we should go out to the stable and you ride around and show us your horse and tell us a little bit about your experience and why this piece feels like that. And then the next year was a young lady from Japan whose name was Saya. And I did a little research um, to find out a little bit more about Japanese uh, 
meaning of her name. Uh, and one of the possible translations was swift arrow. And apparently she was known for being, having very fast fingers. So I did ah. a piece inspired by Japanese uh, gagaku uh, that's very fast. And she did a beautiful job on it. The one we're doing this year was for a young man um, who's quite a fine violinist. Um, and I had seen an aircraft in the uh, Wright-Patterson Air, um, Air Force Museum called Thunder Screech. And I thought, oh, wow, what in the world is a Thunder Screech? Mm -hmm. that, that sounds like that's really fun. I need to find something out about that. So turns out it was an experimental prop, a propeller-driven aircraft from the 1950s. It was supposed to have a supersonic propeller, if you can imagine this, but apparently the warm-up sound that it made was so horrific that it made the ground crews sick. Wow. Okay. Okay. So that, and it was on top of that, it was terribly unstable. The, the amount of torque on the propeller made it impossible to fly it safely. So they scrapped that idea. But I saw this airplane with this name, and I thought, I've got to write a piece about that. So this young man will be premiering this piece on the 15th of May with his teacher. It's a piece for violin and viola duet. And um, we're having a, rehearsal, a Zoom rehearsal on it this, this afternoon. Um, I met him last week for the first time in his lesson, and he's doing a great job of it. And I had to encourage him to make the most horrific, thundery, screechy noises on the violin. You can imagine using sol ponticello and harmonics and all sorts of things that he's never had to do before. And he, he was looking really alarmed, and I said, it has to be really ugly, Brian. It's really got to be ugly. Uh -huh. You know, there's, there's a, a, an introduction in a coda where you get to play beautifully and show us that you're a, a fabulous violinist but in this section it's got to sound horrible right <laughs> right show us that you can do both is please tell me it's called thunder screech of course it has <laughs> so yeah we're, we're we're having fun he's he's getting to be a Jimi hendrix of a violin and a real rock star right so well so how has it been you're still composing and I'm talking to you in a stage that I hope is like a late pandemic. I don't think we're quite post pandemic yet. But um, how has it been shifting these last couple of years to re working remotely, collaborating remotely, dealing with like things like latency across Zoom and other platforms? You know, in music, we, we're working in real, in real time. And so it's, it's really a challenge. Mm hmm. Well, okay, so um, I feel like I'm, it really wasn't too much of a stretch for me to, you know, kind of shift into virtual work. Um, and I think part of that was just because I'd had a long distance relationship with my British husband mm. and we were using a lot of video chat just to stay in touch and work in different time zones and, you know, across, and so forth. Not just before we got married when we were recording, but also during that year, during the pandemic, when, when he was stuck in England and couldn't get across. Um, so it, in a way, it just... I don't know. I mean, I, th I think I was teaching a course at Ohio Wesleyan when this when this hit, actually two classes at Ohio Wesleyan. And um, of course, they extended st uh, spring break for an extra week, thankfully, um, because that was also the same week that my father passed and I was dealing with all that. So I was really glad to have a little bit of extra time. But it took me absolutely no time to figure out how I was going to manage my class. I mean, a department chair wrote and said, well, we're going to try to start next week on such and such a date. Do you have a plan? I said, absolutely. We're going to use Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. video chat. 
my classes were small like they are at Hendricks. It wasn't going to be too difficult to manage a class of fewer than 10 students um, via video chat. Um, and, you know, obviously sending PDFs back and forth of homework assignments and things like that, that was fine. Uh, using, a, I, you know, I'm no stranger to generating MP3s and MP4s when I need to. Um, in fact, one of the classes I'm teaching at Malone right now is a music technology course, which is all about, you know, using recording studio equipment. Sure. And so, um, so actually, in some ways, it was kind of nice because I didn't have to deal with the snow. Northeast Ohio snow. We're still having snow. <laughs> wow. Um, and, you know, commuting 150 miles or whatever it is to go teach someplace where, and following a salt truck down the highway. Uh, you know, I was I was like, yeah, I can do this. This is nice. I don't have to spend three hours on the road each direction and worry if I'm going to get stuck in a snowdrift, which I did on Christmas Eve uh, the first night I was here because I was off playing a a uh, Christmas Eve service got out at midnight of and there course. were two people on the ground and I was driving a car that didn't have four wheel drive and got stuck twice. Didn't get home till 3am. So yeah, I was, I'm, I'm all for this, this virtual stuff. It's great. Karen, you have just shared so much wonderful stuff in our time today, um, both past and present. We really appreciate you taking the time to catch up with us. And uh, it's been a joy. Thank so, you so much. And Stephanie, thank you for being yeah. here. Thank you. Well, thank you for thinking of me. It's been fun to catch up and so great to see you, Stephanie. You too. It's been a joy. You've been listening to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendrick's Past, a podcast brought to you by the Hendrick's College Offices of Communications, Technology Services, and Development. Our audio engineer is Megan Stevenson, Hendricks Class of 2007. Our theme music was created by Kristen Pichinsky, Hendricks Class of 1997, performing as Ellen Cherry. I'm Amy Meredith Forbes, Hendricks Class of 1996. Thanks for listening. <laughs>